here, co-creator of The Daily Show and co-host of the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod. Well, the vaginal crossing guards on the Supreme Court have destroyed Roe v. Wade. Good news, my nonprofit abortion access front can help. On July 17th, we're hosting an activist training day called Operation Save Abortion. We're gathering experts from every area in the field of abortion justice and live streaming a series of conversations that break down the many opportunities available to you to protect access to all things reproductive care. Helping patients with travel needs, lobbying politicians, and getting into good trouble out in these streets are just a few examples that these amazing panels are gonna break down and bonus, connect you to the organizations in your area doing this work. So gather your friends for a watch party, then commit to becoming a defender of abortion access. I'll be there, and so should you. Operation Save Abortion, July 17th. For all the info and to register, hit up operationsaveabortion.com. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello, and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willits. And I'm Julia Clare. And boy, do we have an episode for you today. Uh, the topic that we're going to focus on is abortion, the whole episode. Um, first, how are you feeling about things right now? <laughs> um, well, I... I don't feel great. It hasn't been a great couple of weeks uh, in terms of obviously like Supreme Court rulings and the like. Um, A lot of movement in red state governments has been pretty bad, pretty gruesome. I'm also like I started a job where I have to read the news all day, every day, like for work. And um, it, it does a number on the old psyche, I have to say. Uh, but I am more informed than I've ever been, I think, um, which is really saying something. And um, you were pretty informed before, so that's, yeah, that's a rough go. <laughs> it's really, I mean, it's just it's learning about a lot of the like tertiary stories that are also bad in a lot of cases, um, but. Yeah, I I don't know. I've been, uh, I I'm allowed to say what I want in in my my new job. Um, so that's helpful. I don't have to like self censor. I don't have to kowtow to, um, bros, like, bros, democratic establishment niceties. I all that's out the window. I don't have to do any of that, which is great. That's amazing. Um, and but yeah uh it's been it's been rough it's also been weird like my boyfriend is canadian and i don't have i talked about this on the show before that like and he's canadian yeah but yeah 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 no but but that like so his mom like emails me and i know she's just trying to connect 
But like after the road, after the Dobbs decision, rather, she sent me this email being like, this is lunacy. And here's a link to a former Canadian Supreme Court justice. We don't have lifetime appointments here. Um, and his his uh, analysis of why the Dobbs decision is ridiculous. And I'm like, I appreciate the the sentiment, but it is a little bit like like I know it's bad here, and I know it's better there. So Do you think that it's part of a long con to get you and her son to move to Canada. Yes. Well, we stand a strategic queen. We stand. I mean, she's very smart. She speaks multiple languages. She's smarter than me. She's conning me, and I love it. I mean, that's a tempting um, offer, though. It's not like she's just approaching you with some bullshit. This is not a subprime mortgage. This is a country I know. that is functioning much better than ours. Yeah. They really are. They really are. And even... I mean, even their like neolib prime minister is better than our neolib president, um, which is tough. But yeah, also, I mean, Canada's just too cold. It's too cold. You know, things are pretty bad here right now. I, you, I've been, you know, I've been thinking about a lot. I've been thinking about um, the people that are like defending the Biden administration, which pretty much seems to be the K hive at this point. Um, yeah. This one comedian. I won't say her name, but posted like a 15 tweet thread implying that the squad is part of a right wing conspiracy to uh, take Joe Biden down. Oh my God. It's definitely turned into blue and on. I know that phrase. That's gets, so funny. <laughs> I know that phrase gets thrown around. And to be clear, I'm I'm not stating that this is the the majority of actually very normie liberals are are pretty mad at, at uh, our boy Joe right now. People I think have really sort of seen okay, this guy is not up to the moment, and, and neither is his uh, vice president, who is, has said some incredible things. <laughs> in the past couple of weeks don't make very much sense at all (laughs) she i mean and the thing is is that she's so young so she really has no excuse she should be you know she should be sharper i don't know it's uh, uh, some of the the word salad that she is putting out there i just don't I don't know if she's just like under so much pressure and scrutiny for the first time, but this can't like she was a U.S. senator. She like she she has a speechwriter and she goes on these, you know, news shows or whatever. And, you know, it's very easy to anticipate what kinds of questions you're going to be asked. Yeah. And then, you know, she's asked about them and, you know, she's like just totally stumped you know i know so it's very strange you know i think that yeah i mean it uh it remains to be seen if joe biden is going, going to run again and kamala harris is obviously the um you know the the main person that would probably be favored by the democratic party to to run if if joe biden didn't run but you know i i just don't see it i i don't i don't see her being able to do that and it's not honestly she's a woman and it's not because no color it's because she's really bad at this and you know what i don't even think the democratic party would be like the democratic party is not great on i i just don't think they would i don't think she would be their first choice either because she wasn't even like 
you know, when you saw how she did in 2020, she wasn't even, you know, she wasn't polling super high. I think there was a couple uh, sort of, I don't want to say dark horse, sort of dark horse candidates that people are starting to talk about that would potentially primary Joe Biden. One is the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, who I can, I've, I've, uh, I've been following Gavin Newsom since um, he was mayor of San Francisco when I lived there. Right. And, you know, Gavin Newsom is like, I hate when people kind of throw this around just to random people online, but in Gavin Newsom's case, it's, it's apt. He is a neoliberal shill. I mean, he is an empty suit, but he's an empty suit with more ambition than Joe Biden. So you see him doing stuff that is actually like pretty good. Like, you know, having California produce its own insulin so that people can buy mm. it at cost, which is honestly an amazing thing to do. That's it's, such that's a, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people in California got a stimulus check uh, for inflation of about like a thousand bucks. I mean, you see Gavin Newsom being willing to talk about and do things that, you know, this kind of ossified Pelosi, Biden, Schumer trifecta will not do. And the other candidate that people are talking about is uh, J.B. Pritzker, who is the governor of Illinois, who has apparently been a really good governor. So he's like, he's like a center left dude that basically what's so special about him in in, uh, people's minds is that he made some campaign promises and followed through on a good percentage of them. So yeah, there's like a socialist for Pritzker movie movement that is unclear to me to what extent it's ironic. And I feel like it's unclear even to the people in it. But, you know, I think that some people are like hoping that he could maybe be like an FDR style president, you know, that would like maybe, you know, make promises to, to do, you know, but Bernie Sanders type things or, or at minimum yeah. the, the types of things Joe Biden was promising, but, but actually do them. And he's a billionaire. I personally think it's really pretty silly for socialists to be standing a billionaire. I think it's, a, I, I don't know, but I mean, that being said, despite the, the ghoulishness of Newsom or the billionaireness of JB Pritzker, certainly either of these men would be more, effective than Joe Biden, who is just clearly not up to the task. Yeah. So Newsom is is interesting because what I will say about him is I completely agree that he is an empty suit and he is a shill. But he also is, he seems to pay more attention to public polling on issues like popularism than joe biden does or that a lot of people in his administration do um and that is i mean that might just be the nature of his position as governor he might like who knows what he would do as president what i will say about gavin newsom that he has um going for him is that he is uh we we have to say it he's very handsome he is classically good looking kate disagrees with me I don't it's care face for so long. I mean, he's look. Yeah, I think. OK, if we're going to go on looks alone, Pritzker over Newsom. I actually don't know what he looks like, so I'm going to look him up right now. Um, yeah, um, he's, he's huge. He's like an enormous man. And you I think actually, he's better looking than. No, 
not saying better looking, but I'm saying like, I think that there is some comfort that people would find in having an enormous president. It's like the Fetterman thing. Like, I think that people right. take comfort in Fetterman's sheer size. And the sheer size. Thing, and the same thing is going on with Prince Carter. It's a William Howard Taft situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I just looked him up and no comment on his looks. But um, how tall is Gavin Newsom? I don't know how tall he is. Newsom. He is 6'3". I mean, Newsom is just, you know... He's about to be my governor. I'm moving to California in October and... He's going to be my governor and he's going to be my problem. And then I'm going to have to deal with L.A. city politics, too, which is going to be definitely more progressive than anything that's happening in the Bay Area at this point. You know? Yeah, totally. And also, I mean, I'm I am so disgusted with like the budgetary decisions here in New York right now. I'm so, I just think that Eric Adams should be recalled. I think he's. We can't um, do that, can we? We don't have that here. No, we can't. But if we could, I would. Um, Yeah, but it's going to be a whole new ball game. I, you know, I've been pretty involved in New York City politics um, since I moved here, but um, yeah, it's, uh, the people who can continue to do it and not lose steam and not get the wind taken out of their sails. I really, I have all the respect in the world for them. Um, we had, you know, we've had Sia Weaver on before and she's a big, um, uh, tenants rights, uh, organizer and she's been in the game forever. She knows everything and she just keeps going and I have all the respect in the world for her. Um, and yeah, but I guess we should start talking about abortion. abortion. Okay. So I did some research on the history of abortion in the U S and I'll give you some broad strokes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, early abortion, like, you know, founding of the U S until 1870s. It was, to- it was completely legal until what they called quickening, which is when you can feel the baby. The heartbeat, yeah. When you can feel the kicking, actually. The kicking. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. And the thing was, is like, you know, this was obviously self-reported, right? So it was like based on, you know, when the, the pregnant woman said that she felt the kickings. And this comes from this sort of old ancient Greek idea about when the soul enters the body and what they imagined was the soul the quickening the the kicking that you can feel was that was when the the soul had entered the body and um you know usually around 22 to 24 weeks but again totally up to the woman to when to say so or not and um you know before that it was easy to get an abortion there was a thriving industry of abortionists there was a woman named madame Restel who was spending more than sixty thousand dollars a year on advertising that's how big her abortion business was i mean imagine like that's i don't know what the equivalent is in today's dollars but a huge huge budget and um abortion was performed by 
midwives who were like the first medical specialists. Um, and this was based in uh, British common law. And even the Catholic church didn't decide that life begins at conception until 1869. They were also mm -hmm. using the quickening standard. So it was totally fine. And it was you know, it was actually a movement of doctors that raised the first concern about abortion. So uh, in 1857, the American Medical Association decided to go on this crusade. And they had like two motivations. Um, one, you know, well, a few. OK, so what they were saying was they were concerned for fetal life, but they also wanted to put their competitors out of business. That was a big thing is that they wanted to kind of, you know, get rid of these sort of like specialized, not officially doctors, medical professionals, and just have everyone go to a doctor doctor for birth, put the midwives out of business. Um, and there was also a lot of concern over the birth rate. Um, the civil war had happened. Mm. A lot of people died. Um, and there was also some racist motivation to this and xenophobic motivation. Um, the doctors were concerned that middle class white women were not having as many children as even uh, the Catholic immigrants, the Irish people, the Italian people, the people of color. But it, it wasn't a religious issue. These doctors went to clergy members and were saying like, hey, you know, how about you preach this to your con congregation that it's, you know, a sin or killing a baby or whatever. And the clergy, for the most part, were like a hard no on it. They're like, eh, that's going to alienate people. I mean, you know, abortion was really popular. There were people that had like eight abortions. Um, I don't know why I think that's funny. It just it's not really funny, but it's just it's so different than I guess what we think that that time was like, you know, and um, there were, it was just very commonly accepted to the point that um, some historians think that it had a serious impact on the birth rate, that actually the birth rate was substantially lowered by all of these abortions. And, you know, one of the initial things that the doctors brought up at that time was how many married women were having abortions. Mm -hmm. They, you know, were somewhat more sympathetic to uh, the plight of the unmarried woman who could have her life ruined. But, you know, like the idea that like a woman who, you know, was already married, already had some kids would want to try to limit her reproduction in any way, you know, that that was, lowering the, the white birth rate and or particularly the white Protestant birth rate. And, you know, this also kind of coincides with the beginning of uh, the suffragette movement, um, women starting to get more independent, you know, kind of that rise of first wave feminism. And uh, it was definitely related to a pushback on that. And then I want to read you this one passage. So lobbying by doctors started to really gain some traction in the 1860s. And by about that time, most states had passed statutes that 
had you know, limited abortion, um, changed the definition of abortion to include any induced miscarriage, not just after four months, and started to see these laws actually punishing women as well as the practitioners. And it was state by state. But in 1873, there was a total abortion ban, and that's when it was completely outlawed in the United States, along with all contraceptions. And um, in addition to outlawing uh, contraception, they also outlawed any information about sex or the process of human reproduction. Um, there was uh, the Comstock Law that gave a famous purity crusader, I'm reading this passage from uh, Jenny Brown's book, Without Apology. Okay, so the federal Comstock law gave that famous purity crusader, Anthony Comstock, the ability to raid any bookstore, medical facility, college, office, or home to eradicate not just contraceptive devices or abortion elixirs, but any knowledge of contraception and abortion. All of it was classed as obscenity. Many Comstock laws followed in most states. Some were stricter, explicitly forbidding doctors to convey information to their patients about contraception and abortion. So it wasn't until 1936 that courts allowed doctors to uh, mail contraceptive materials. Um, even in 1973, many states still prohibited advertising of contraceptives. So, you know, it was just, a, it was a massive purity crackdown that really included all control uh, over reproduction. Um, so, all right, 1957, Margaret Sanger um, and researchers uh, started funding, researching, looking into the birth control pill. And in 1960, the first birth control pill was approved by the FCA. So in many ways, good, but also, you know, there was like a pretty shitty history to this. Testing of the pill was done in Puerto Rico, um, which is part of the, it wasn't a, people, part of the reason that testing was done in Puerto Rico was be, obviously because of the very racist motivations of controlling, like limiting the birth rate of people in Puerto Rico, you know, just classic white people trying to uh, prevent non-white people from having kids. But, um, you know, it was also illegal to take the pill in the United States. So that's part of the reason they did it there. And, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is part of like a, a very long tradition of eugenics. Um, you know, there had been a lot of forced sterilizations in the United States, um, in Mississippi, sterilization of women, of black women was so common um, that it was called a Mississippi appendectomy. Um, nationally, uh, doctors worked with the welfare system to sterilize over a hundred women per year, most women of color. Uh, Mexican-American women were forced to sign forms while giving birth to authorize sterilization. And a lot of the time, they did not even know what they were signing because they were in the middle of giving birth. And that's not a really great time to try to read a form. And a lot of the time, they were told that, um, hey, you don't get any, uh, any pain relief until you sign this form um 
So, you know, there's there's a lot of racist policies and you start to see some people actually oppose abortion and birth control for this reason, because, um, you know, black and Puerto Rican people, because abortion and birth control had been used for eugenics purposes. Um, and uh, black and Puerto Rican feminists pushed back. I'm going to read a passage from feminist and black nationalist Myrna Hill, also from Jenny Hill's book, um, what she says here. The nationalist brothers who counsel black women to concern themselves solely with burying and educating black children to build our nation forget. Black women in this country have been having babies for quite a while. What we want is not just more black babies, but a new black nation that is free. Black women can't do anything about changing the situation by cooking greens and getting pregnant. The struggle that will replace this system is outside the kitchen. And these black and Puerto Rican feminists argued that women were dying at high rates due to abortion. But, you know, I think it is very important to acknowledge that, you know, like controlling the reproduction of people of color it has, has been a, a theme for the white power structure in the United States, you know, forcing slaves to have babies um forcing them to breastfeed breastfeed rape i mean just yeah. all kinds of horrors so it, it makes sense that th this came up you know um so margaret sanger problematic person um you know she explicitly spoke uh, at eugenics conferences um she talked about birth control being used to first facilitate the process of quote weeding out the unfit and of preventing the birth of defectives. But her motivation, you know, was also to, to give women the possibility of, or some women anyway, the possibility of, of controlling their own reproduction. So I guess what I'm saying is it's good that we have the pill, but very complicated history that yeah. many feminists have, feminists of color have engaged with and, you know, concluded that, yes, you know, despite all of these things, it is still beneficial for women to be able to control their own reproduction. Right. And, okay. Uh, so during the time of legal abortion, um, there were lots of different kinds of illegal abortionists. Uh, one queen of illegal abortion, Frank Sinatra's mom. Do you know about this? No. Frank Sinatra's mom, Dolly Sinatra, was a... Uh, she, she was like the main abortionist in Hoboken, New Jersey. She was a midwife, an abortionist, and a saloon operator, and uh, had her fingers and controlling politics she was um she's making a lot of money um her technique this is going to be upsetting it involved a wire and days of lysol douching um she was arrested in 1937 after a patient almost died but continued to perform abortions after and yeah yeah she she is a frank sinatra's mom is, is one of the uh the I don't know what we want to say. Heroes? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, she's, she's responsible for so many women being able to get abortions. But in addition to 
people like Frank Sinatra's mom, they were also highly trained practitioners. Yeah. Um, real doctors. There was Dr. Ruth Barnett, who was a nat- naturopath, and she practiced in Portland for almost 30 years. Um, she was arrested. Basically, what happened is the police came to her practice, said uh, she had to pay them off. She didn't pay them off. Um, then she went to jail for six months and then went back to performing abortions. And then eventually she was jailed again when she was in her seventies. Um, so they were really skilled practitioners too. It wasn't all this back alley abortions, but a lot of the very skilled practitioners, people who actually knew what they were doing medically and could do it safe were driven out of the market by these police crackdowns. And then, you know, more and more abortions were uh pushed further underground um this happens these crackdowns happen a lot uh after the world war uh too because women had to have a lot of abortions during the depression because they couldn't right. additional family members right and during the war uh women got more independence of course because a lot of the men were at war so women were working um and so the police really started to crack down like largely in response to this additional independence for women um and so as abortion became more secretive i mean i think it was kind of before then sometimes it was really secretive but sometimes it was kind of this thing where like you know people were paying off the police. There was a lot of being willing to look the other way as long as the bribes were paid and people, you know, at least in some cities knew where to get an abortion. And then, you know, when they arrested these practitioners, it was horrible because, you know, these that could mean thousands of additional women would die because they wouldn't have access to this safe medical care. And um, the way that they did it, you know, Women were interrogated in hospital beds. They were forced to give up the names of their practitioners or face jail time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you started seeing practitioners doing things like blindfolding and drugging the women to take them to a second location so they wouldn't know the identities of their practitioners, couldn't give them up. Yeah, and, you know, just really horrible. And then, of course, you know, it, as it becomes harder and harder to tell who's safe, that's when you end up... Uh, you know, having more of these like back alley coat hanger type abortions that killed a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the post-war period, there was also attempt to liberalize abortion restrictions, um, particularly in the case of rape, incest, birth defects, and even to preserve the health of women. And, um, you know, you had to prove these things in front of a hospital board. So, you know, it, it was like, if you wanted to, let's say affect you know say that you were raped and that you you were should be allowed to have an abortion for that reason you had to prove it to a board of men who you know probably were not sympathetic to your case and you know it was often a humiliating and demoralizing experience that resulted in even less abortions actually um so you know, there were a lot of these reforms were passed, but they didn't particularly increase the number of uh, legal abortions. Uh, one woman named Pat McGinnis uh, started an organization called the Society for Humane Abortion. McGinnis had three abortions herself and was really pissed about what she had to go through. Her birth control kept failing for one reason or another, and she had to go to Mexico for one. 
um, and just had a horrible time trying to get abortion. So her and a woman named Lana Claire Phelan and Rowena Gurner uh, became known as the army of three. And uh, what they did is they interviewed people on street corners about abortions, wrote the stories down, published them anonymously. They distributed a list of abortion providers in Mexico. Uh, they published materials on how to do your own abortions. Um, and they were early abortion, I want to say early, I guess, you know, in, in the lead up to Roe, they were important activists, these army of three. Uh, in 1970, 40,000 women marched through the streets of New York City uh, in the women's strike for equality. Uh, there were demands for free child care, and one of the demands was abortion, free abortion on demand. And then New York, in yeah. response to this, passed the most liberal abortion law in the entire country. New York was the abortion haven right here in the state, baby. So uh, people tried to strike it down. Um, and, you know, but the uh, the attempt to strike it down, the legislation striking it down was vetoed by the governor Rockefeller. But you still had a situation where a lot of providers are refusing to do abortions. So even if it's, you know, legal in many circumstances, something like 80 percent of doctors still won't do it. You know, so that's there's mm -hmm. kind of parallels to to now even because in some of these red states, like even before. It, you know, abortion was technically banned. It was all but banned because right. there was just uh, not doctors willing to do them. Uh, okay, so then um, in 1973, we have the famous uh, Roe versus Wade case, and that case is really interesting. Um, Roe, Jane Roe, was a pseudonym for a woman named Norma McCorvey. She was 22, she lived in Dallas, and she was pregnant, and she wanted to terminate her pregnancy. Um, she was not, she had a ninth grade education, she didn't have a job. Um, she felt like there were no options for her, um, and she connected with uh, lawyers, Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington. And they were recent graduates of the University of Texas Law School. They were feminists, um, and, um, they sued the state of Texas um, the, for having these uh, restrictions that they called cruel and inadequate, um, especially for poor women who couldn't afford to travel to other states to get abortions. And um, after that happened, after abortion was legalized, McCorvey had the baby, you know, Supreme Court cases take a long time. And she mm -hmm. had the baby, gave it up for adoption. Um, she, in 1995, had a religious conversion and became an outspoken critic of abortion and became one of the like faces of the uh, anti-abortion movement. And then on her deathbed, this is so dramatic, on her deathbed, when, at age 69, while she was in an assisted living facility, uh, she said that she had been paid by religious interests to turn against abortion, she said. I took their money, they put me in front of cameras and tell me what to say. Um, and then she said, if a young woman wants to have an abortion, that's no skin off my ass. That's why they call it choice. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's no skin off my ass. That's so funny. It is that's, so funny. I mean, I mean this is a, it's just a really sad and confusing life, the way that she was 
Yeah. You know, collaborating with the anti-abortion movement. And also it sounds like she didn't have a lot of options, didn't have a lot of education, you know, uh, obviously a pretty high profile figure in, in both sides of the abortion movement. So, you know, it's weird and sad, but uh, I mean, I think just kind of a testament to the fact that, oh, you know, perhaps uh, the religious right is willing to do some stuff that's pretty shady. Would you right. imagine? All right. So, well, we talked. We well, we talked on an on another episode. I think we talked about how um, the evangelicals were mobilized by like architects of the religious right, like Jerry Falwell, um, and how they were a pretty apolitical block before. They were not big voters, and. Jerry Falwell and other members of um, the what became known as the moral majority um, constructed this plan to mobilize evangelicals, which were seen as this like untapped um, voting block. And it worked. Um, evangelicals were pretty. Uh, they were not very vociferously opposed to abortion um before that whole movement happened so do you know okay here's a here's a here's a quiz question what do you think their actual motivation was what did they really want to do i'll give you multiple choice were they really a interested in saving baby lives or b in keeping schools segregated huh <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a hard one um i'm gonna i'm you know what shot in the dark i think it's b yeah it is so there's this guy we're talking about the the rise of the moral majority and the religious right so in the 1970s the IRS wants to rescind the tax exempt status of white only schools. And there's this guy, Paul Weirich, who is a conservative activist. And I think he's dead now, but I don't know if he's dead or not. I should, who knows? Hopefully he's dead. Um, he is one of the architects of the religious right, goes on to found the, the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Bob Jones University. Um, is a religious university, and they have also what a oh I mean just a name of a school that you know that like no learning goes on there. Bob Jones University, <laughs> get out of my Robert life. Bob Jones University. Bob Jones University. <laughs> yeah. So uh, among those those uh, segregationists affected is Jerry Falwell, who referred to the civil rights movement as the civil wrongs movement. Okay, and, yeah, fire. Yeah, and he opened his own segregation academy in 1967. Um, this is from a an article uh, by Randall Bomber that I will uh, post in the, the show notes. I think he also wrote a, a book on on the abortion rights movement and uh, segregation. So, you know, they couldn't really, they, tr they certainly tried, but they couldn't mobilize evangelical Christians around the issue of preserving school segregation. 
Um, but, you know, they kind of tested out a few strategies and th they wanted to mobilize the evangelicals against Jimmy Carter because this IRS tax crackdown was, uh, you know, coming uh, under their under the Carter administration. And, you know, this was this thing where a lot of white evangelicals like were racist, but it, they just weren't quite comfortable having a uh, a grassroots loud movement about school segregation. So Falwell flipped the script and, you know, instead of mobilizing for segregation, um, they decided to rally people around the issue of abortion. Um, Ronald Reagan, I mean, so until the, uh, you know, 80s, abortion isn't really that partisan of an issue. There are people yeah. in the Republican Party who are abortion pro, pro-choice, Betty Ford, uh, Gerald Ford's wife. Um, she supports a woman's right to choose. Joe Biden is a Democrat who opposes it. He voted for a constitutional amendment that would let the states overturn Roe versus Wade. And, you know, if you look at polling from around this time, there's definitely a there's definitely a bunch of voters who are against abortion, but they really fall on both sides. And yeah. so the moral majority really kind of consolidates all of this support into the Republican Party and you mobilize a bunch of uh, evangelicals um, around the idea that life begins at conception. You know, preachers start preaching this. There are very kind of classic conservative scholars who, you know, scholars and leaders in the movement who want, um, you know, like like a Bill Crystal, for example. We see him mm. on Twitter and we see liberals retweeting him. He wasn't particularly religious at all. He might not have been religious at all. He was like a kind of like uh, taxes for rich people kind of conservative. But they, you know, a lot of people write about how they can, you know, use this anti-abortion energy to kind of, um, you know, get people who are not necessarily interested in other Republican issues to uh, you know, be enthusiastic about the Republican Party and how it can kind of provide like a sort of moral cover. Because if you think about it, like, you know, the other issues in the Republican Party, like they don't sound so good, like, hey, let's cut welfare for everybody. Like this idea to kind of have this this sort of grounding thing, like, hey, we're the party of like saving the babies. That's right. extremely useful for even the Republicans who are not religious. And, you know, so it becomes this decades long battle. Um, the first few years after Roe versus Wade is uh comes down the pipe um the federal government was actually funding um the federal government was actually funding uh one third of abortions and um then the Hyde amendment comes down in 1976 and you know who signed the Hyde amendment was it joe biden no, it was Jimmy Carter, but Joe Biden was a big supporter. And here's what Jimmy Carter said. Um, so he said in 1977, when he signed it, he said, well, as you know, there are many things in life that are not fair, that wealthy people can afford and poor people can't. But 
I don't believe that the federal government should take action to try to make these opportunities exactly equal, particularly where there is a moral factor involved. And, you know, a ton of uh, poor women have died as a result of the Hyde Amendment. Uh, the first person who is known to have died because of the Hyde Amendment was a woman named Rosie Jimenez of uh, McAllen, Texas, who died from an illegal abortion um, because uh, she could not get Medicaid funding. This was her second abortion. She had one that Medicaid paid for from a real doctor and the second one not available through Medicaid anymore. And so she lost her life, um, you know, it did all this whack shit. Uh, the next kind of like frontier, in addition to um, making sure that no federal funding was allowed for abortion, was these horrible parental consent laws, which I think mm -hmm. are just so incredibly sinister. You know, I mean, like people who don't want to tell their parents that they are having an abortion, there's often a really good reason for that. And, you know, if you are not old enough, to decide if you want to have an abortion, really you're old enough to be uh, a parent of yeah. a child, that it just makes no sense. And, you know, um, yeah, so, you know, this is, this is pretty much like the general, you know, history uh, bringing us up to now. I mean, you know, in this, in this time since Roe versus Wade, it's, uh, you know, I see like a lot of street violence, a lot of harassment of uh, clinics, the murder of abortion providers, uh, the Heritage Foundation. Um, remember that guy, Paul Weirich, you know, mm -hmm. his organization and the Federalist Society um, getting these conservative anti-abortion judges. But it's important to note that this didn't really this like hardcore push it didn't start immediately after Roe versus Wade, that like moral majority came later and it came in response to the Carter administration's uh, like, you know, ending the tax exempt status and the IRS crackdown. Like they were, you know, pretty much looking to stay out of that particular and, and a lot of political issues and, until then. So yeah, you know, here we are, um, you know, with certainly, certainly a lot of people that put time, energy, lots and lots and lots of money into banning abortion. And, you know, then as now, it is, you know, way to kind of push back on any advances women are making um, and also um, keep, you know, the white supremacist heteropatriarchal structures of the United States in place. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this brings us to a really interesting moment, which is that, as you said, both with like Carter and Joe Biden, um, that we have people, that we have Democrats, um, you know, people who are otherwise, like, I don't know why I'm a Carter apologist, but I can't I can't seem to shake him. Because the more uh, you learn about him, the less you'll feel like apologizing for him. I know. Him. <laughs> yeah, it's I really know. disappointing because we're always presented with this like uh, notion of him as just this really sweet peanut farm guy, but he actually did a lot of horrible shit. No, I know. I know he did. Um, but it's a lot of men, like Democratic men, kind of legitimizing the 
erosion of abortion uh, as an institution and, and vilifying it, like legitimizing the false negative uh, PR around it, basically. Um, and I don't know. It's just, it's a really, obviously it's just like, it's horrifying that we are where we are today. And so many women will die, not because of like botched abortions per se, but because have get, childbirth is like six times more dangerous than having an abortion. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of people in the um, abortion activism space who really discourage well-meaning people from the, like, bloody coat hanger imagery because that's not where we are anymore. We do have much safer um, options available to us, even for people who live in states where it is banned it's and so far it is 10 states have a full ban um and you know after six weeks quote unquote is a full ban because no no one can get an abortion in that time no one finds out that they're pregnant and then is able to go through all the hoops that these states have in place for them and then is able to get an abortion in that time um it's a full ban and it's expected that up to 26 states will have a full ban that is more than half of the states in america so this is a really fucking horrifying time but it's not without we aren't where we are before 1973 and um i think it's really important for people to know that um in fact, the um, there are two drugs that are used um, as abortion pills, and um, they have been approved by the FDA. These are very safe, and um, in fact, the uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland just announced that states cannot ban these abortion pills because they are FDA approved. And they, um, they'll be fighting that out in court. Of all course. The time now. Yeah. Of course. And it brings us to a very, yeah, it's a very interesting time that we are today, especially having Joe Biden as president, who was, as you said, a former. <laughs> Uh, opponent of abortion because is he a former opponent? Hmm. Or, or, is he, <laughs> or is he a current opponent? We <laughs> okay. So yesterday we're recording this on Saturday. Yesterday on July eighth, uh, the Biden administration, Joe Biden signed an executive order, um, meant to safeguard. Um, some aspects of abortion federally in as much as he can uh, through an executive order. Um, so the order aims to protect patient privacy um, and safeguards access to medication abortion and emergency contraception. 
And so he tasked his Department of Health and Human Services Secretary, Javier Becerra, with expanding access to emergency contraception and long-acting reversible contraception like IUDs and ensuring patients have access to, quote, the full rights and protections for emergency medical care afforded under the law. Um, Biden also directed Becerra to consider updating guidance that clarifies physician responsibilities and protections under the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. Um, it also establishes an interagency task force on reproductive health care access, including Attorney General Mer Merrick Garland, who, as I just said, issued a statement warning states that they cannot ban um, mifepristone. Mifepristone, uh, because it's an FDA-approved medication uh, used to end early pregnancy. Um, what I will say, I mean, this doesn't go far enough, obviously, and um, it's a good start. But the Biden administration, it, you know, there was a report in Business Insider, I think, that the Biden administration... Um, declined declaring a national health emergency after Roe was overturned, and that would have greatly expanded the Department of Health and Human Services powers Yeah, um, because they were like, well, we'll be in court the next day if we do that. Well, yeah. still try. Yeah, I mean, Do everything. What are we paying all these lawyers for? I mean, what are we... Come it's on. To like, know that, like, you know, Planned Parenthood, this idea of the public health emergency, this came from repro rights organizations, Planned Parenthood, mm -hmm. NARAL, Emily's List, who, you know, have their failings sometimes, but they approached, uh, you know, like, women um, in, in Congress, I think specifically, you know, Warren Gillibrand, some other senators, with this idea. And, you know, to me, it's just like this thing where, you know, there's this there's this idea that is within the scope of presidential power, um, and Biden is declining to do it. Where did that leak come from? We don't know. Was it somebody? Was it someone inside the Biden administration who was disgruntled, or was it uh, a you know sort of like on purpose leak where the Biden administration is leaking their own rationale for this? It's more likely. I, I bet someone who was disgruntled with. Uh, yeah, you know his his decision not to do that, but you know, to me, I think as as I saw you point out on Twitter yesterday, you know, like they're you know Biden's out there making the case that like you know it's women who are going to uh, determine this next election, and you know half the population is under assault, and you know we need to get a supermajority. Well, you know the best way to prove that you would actually use your supermajority is mm -hmm. taking all the actions available to you now because like a bad relationship, you know, there's only, there's not very much trust left. There's been a right. lot of broken promises. The, you know, we've been uh, cheated on a lot of times here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we don't believe you're not gonna fuck around on us again, you know? Um, yeah. And- I mean, and we're, a lot of us are, you know, it, and it's not just progressives who are like upset with Biden about this. It is mainstream Democrat, mainstream Democrat voters. Except for the K-Hive. Except for the K-Hive. Who's but, defending him at all costs. But I think there are just a lot of 
again, a lot of people in like our mom's generation who are Democrats, who are so disillusioned and upset, rightly upset about um, about how inert the Biden administration has been and how insufficient their response has been. And even I mean, Biden also it's so it's not just declaring a national health emergency, Biden also um you know, doesn't want to do certain things uh, that have been suggested by Warren, Gillibrand, AOC. He's an opponent of packing the court. He's an opponent of the idea of putting, um, of providing abortions on federal land. Um, and yeah, you know, there there are people in the Democratic Party, in different wings of the Democratic Party, who are trying to make suggestions and he is just kind of summarily um shooting them down i don't think that he is up to the task of this moment i don't think i'm alone in saying that uh but what is yeah i I think what is particularly I, i think the only thing that he's reverse course on is um now saying that he would support uh ending the filibuster in order to do in order to get a carve out yeah for this right legislation well i mean you know so like you know to to quote a real king vladimir lenin what is to be done you know and uh pew 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 yeah You know, like within within the range of you know things that we can endorse on a podcast, which you know obviously uh, direct actions, property damage, and more. Shouldn't talk about it on a podcast and shouldn't post about it on your social media. But um, you know, I mean, like a lot. You know, because abortion restrictions are coming down to the states. You know, like these state house battles are really important, particularly in purple states. I mean, there's this decision. The Supreme Court next year is hearing a case called Moore versus Harper. You know about this one yet? Oh yeah. It's incredibly fucked up, and man, I, it's like never been a worse time to have a weak and corrupt Democratic Party um, because what this case, you know, will do. Like, you know, if the conservative justices rule the way that that they're going to, let's, let's be honest, um, it's a basically give the power. Uh, it's, it's based on something called the uh, independent state legislature theory. So basically, it's really important that I mean, like, you know, it's a tough situation because I hate the Democratic Party so much and any loss that they face is richly deserved and they won't pay the price for it. It will really be the most marginalized people. And, you know, I definitely think that if you are in a purple state, it is worth voting for the most progressive Democrat you possibly can. And I know myself, you know, I mean, I'm very disenchanted with electoral politics, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, like showing up to vote for, you know, any insurgent candidate. Um, I mean, I live in New York, a very blue state, you know, but I, I like, I, I still think that, you know, I think especially if you live in a, in a purple state, it is uh, still, 
still worth uh, voting for Democrats, even though, you know, that's a, a small percentage of what it is going to take to, you know, protect people at this point, you know? Yeah. And I will say that, you know, um, I, I think I'm so we're all so upset with the Biden administration for how little they have done because and how uh, insufficient their response has been and how they, they're showing that they aren't willing to fight um, because Republicans are just going full steam ahead. Um, it's the ultimate knife to a gunfight situation, but it's, absolutely. Like a, it's like a feather to a gunfight situation. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, the fights in purple states are very relevant and really important coming up um, in Pennsylvania. Uh, conservatives in the Pennsylvania State Senate advanced a bill that would explicitly strip any protections for abortion from their state constitution. And... Um, uh, you know, there was this in Louisiana there. So they Louisiana had a trigger law, but the uh, there was a district judge who um, granted a, a restraining order from the ban from being enforced. But yesterday that restraining order was lifted by another district judge. Um, so it's just it's it's tough but i want to say it's not again it's we are not where we were before 1973 but we're and... not where we were in uh 2021 either so. exactly <laughs> um but you know i mean okay perhaps that's being overly glib because i mean a lot of these states like abortion has been you know restricted almost impossible to get for so long i mean but this is definitely this is it's definitely worse um you know especially in terms of like the measures that are uh criminalizing abortion and you know like i mean these laws that are going to attempt i don't know if successfully or not but to prevent people from traveling to other states um which i think is probably going to be ruled constitutionally not allowable but also the police yeah. are a gang who do what they want you know so it's like it's really fucked up i just want to say that for mm, people like us in blue states who want to support um efforts to for um people in red states to access abortions there are a lot of great abortion access funds um please do not do that thing where you're like you post on social media you can stay at my house if you need an abortion don't do that um <laughs> there are already a lot there are uh, just hundreds of thousands of of people already on on the ground doing this work um in red states and um you can donate by state you can donate to um groups of of red states and their abortion access funds um so abortionfunds.org um can kind of give you a lot of the resources that you need if you want to if you're either seeking an abortion or if you want to if you're someone who has access to it in a blue state if you want to donate um also if you're in a 
Um, if you're in a state that bans abortion, plancpills.org um, can is a great resource and can provide abortion pills via the mail. Um, there are options that it's like I will never none of us who are who support abortion will like ever stop fighting until we get we get back what we've lost but it's you know we're in we're in a particular landscape right now where there are avenues and we don't have to feel like there's nothing we can do because there are tangible things that we can do um i mean you know we're t leftists talk a lot about like direct action and mutual aid i consider donating to these abortion funds both they yeah. fall under both both of those things yeah i have not on another note i have not done a a great job using gender inclusive language, um, especially because a lot of what we're talking about today was history. So I do want to say that, you know, trans men and non-binary people are also getting abortions. And there was a, a Twitter thread. I just want to read because this is a perspective that is, you know, so much more informed than the one that I have. Um, and uh, to me, this was just really eye-opening and good. This is from a user named Stephen Ira at Super Mattachine. I'll link it in the show notes. Okay. Um, Stephen says, trans men experience specific barriers to care when we need abortions. Almost all debate over whether or not to say pregnant people or women is a proxy debate about whether we will ever discuss unspeakable facts like these. I bring this up because I've spent my life in terror at the need for an abortion, but it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of what actual trans reproductive freedom would need to mean. It would mean, for example, access to affordable freezing of sperm and eggs, and to confront this need for access would be to confront the racist, white supremacist nature of the current transphobic panic over the loss of white reproductive organs to transsexuality sterilizing scalpel. Such a panic would suggest that transsexuality incentivizes us to sterilize ourselves out of a kind of self-destructive madness. Of course, that isn't true. Some trans people want the option of reproduction and its attendant problems gone. Others want it pre preserved. What does, what does incentivize infertility for us, irrespective of what we actually might want? Laws and medical standards that demand our bodies conform before we are allowed to access full citizenship. Countless trans people have had to give up their reproductive autonomy in exchange for legal recognition, for relative freedom from harassment, and for access to basic medical care. None of these Schreer, he's referencing Abigail Schreer, type trans fertility panic professionals have ever wanted trans people to have parenthood as an option. Once we understand the reasons for this, we will have to see people like Schreer for the crypto-Nazi replacement therapists they are. To wrap up, as a trans man, I do not want to be tokenized by cisgender liberal feminists through the constant mention of my womb as though it were, as, as though they were a top with a breeding fetishist. I do want for abortion activists to consider trans access to reproductive autonomy in all its forms in their political agendas. And, you know, I just thought that was making, I mean, I think like a lot of the time, 
when like gender inclusive language you know, it's brought up it's brought up as like a an afterthought you know mm-hmm. and i mean even i'm still getting used to it myself like i'm not like i don't always remember to do it but you know another twitter user made the point that like you know as a tra- as a trans man when he walks into you know uh, an abortion clinic it's gonna be like dude why are you here why are you being creepy and just such a challenge to get medical care and by using inclusive language we're you know we're actually making it easier for people to get care without facing intense stigma or even being told to go away you know so it's not it, there are very shared battles with um trans folks but there's also some very specific and hard challenges that trans people are facing and that like these right-wing nazis are using to advance uh a deeply reactionary fascist agenda and you know it's it's not really an afterthought it's very central to the fight at this time yeah totally and i you know i'm not perfect on it either i the thing that i've seen in relation to this and um two people who who talked about it really thoughtfully were um river butcher and just tom um but a lot of when we talk about gender inclusive language a lot of cis women think like including trans women in women which is like and then they're like well trans women are women and that doesn't uh threaten my femininity totally uh, yes but when we talk about gender inclusive language for repro rights we are talking about trans men and um non-binary folks and i don't want to say that it's easy because it's not it's as a political organize like re organizing around repro rights is made more challenging by having to kind of add like i first of all i hate like birthing bodies yuck i I hate that term too i usually just say women and queer people i don't know yeah it's more natural to me i mean ultimately it's like Birthing people sounds weirdly sterile to me. It feels like we're going to come up with a better term in the next few years, but... It also does, like, weirdly, like, birthing bodies just kind of depersonifies us and, like, makes it sound like all we are are wombs. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I, I agree that it sounds weird. I think that usually when people say, like, birthing people or birthing bodies or whatever, it is in the context of some very you know, sort of medical discussion. It's not like, or menstruators, it's not like being- Yeah. You know, birthing, like, birthing people is like a little better because it yeah. at least says we're people, people, but like yeah. birthing bodies is so clinical in like I've a week. Once. I've seen birthing bodies, I think one time. I guess my point is, is like, you know, to me, like I would agree that that language sounds awkward and sterile, but the people that are saying that it's like some, you know, assaults on feminism. No, it's not. It's like a kind of weird sounding phrase and we'll probably think of something better, you know? And (laughs) look, I, what I will say is that I do, I have a sort of, I have some strain of sympathy for women in, cis women in 
my mother's generation and older who they organized like second wave feminism was very much about like organizing around womanhood and what that meant to them so i understand that they feel a kind of like loss but you gotta get over it the times have changed um and <laughs> like when i saw like bet midler's tweet about that that's what i saw was like a second wave feminist who so much of her political identity and her identity identity is about being a woman and being a cis woman um and she feels that like language that includes trans men and non-binary people erases womanhood um and i don't agree with that at all but i and i just think she needs to like she needs to get with the times. And I know that that's really hard. And I also think, to be totally honest, I think that we need to get like a marketing team on on the rebrand of a, of a gender inclusive term that's like more elegant and like good to organize around and is less clinical, you know, something fun maybe. We can get, we can throw some money at the problem and get a marketing team to come up with this. Yeah. One of the, I mean, there's a lot of stupid things about turfdom, but like, I mean, these police people say that they're feminists, but you know, I don't know what they think that a government that enforces gender is going to be like, because it's certainly not going to be a feminist government. It's going to yeah. be like, everybody's pregnant all the women are you know all the cis women i'm talking about right now are you know in in dresses you know pregnant like you know when you collaborate with these people who are you know have this very sort of like longing for an imaginary past idea of gender shit that it just it's there's no way that it ends up for well for you know cis people particularly because a lot of the people who have been like you know sort of very vocal turfs are people who like don't identify with like a particularly like quote unquote feminine way of being a woman you know there's a lot of like queer women in there and i just you know i don't think that it's gonna there's no circumstance where there's like a gender enforcing government that's like oh you know we're gonna make it illegal to be trans but being a lesbian is really great it's not gonna yeah. happen you know it's just a, it's a completely imaginary plan and oh, man these people are are infuriating so well it and it's also it's also uh, crazy to me when when i see like trans people who are turfs kind of are uh, people turfs i don't i've never seen that like Buck Angel is Oh kind of yeah, Buck Angel, yeah, Buck Angel's a trans medicalist. Yeah, Buck Angel so Buck Angel is a um a trans man, but in his Twitter bio it's like female living as a man. Oh my <laughs> he is God. like I'm it's crazy. Uh he is uh he's a porn star, he 
Um, yeah, but he's like very much like Natalie Wynn, our former guest, was like canceled for having Buck Angel read one line of dialogue in uh, in one of her videos and um, performing as John Waters or whatever. And uh, like reading a line that John Waters had said. And yeah, she got a ton of shit for it. I mean, Buck Angel is like, yeah, he is, it's weird to call him a turf. Maybe he's not, maybe that's, that's not accurate, but he is like, I'm trans, but being trans has gone too far. And Blair White is kind of like that too. Uh, she's a trans woman. She is very much the like trans femme Ben Shapiro. <laughs> Yeah. And all the creepy right-wing dudes are, like, so thirsty for her. I know. I mean, she is... She's gorgeous. She's very beautiful. But, um... Actually, someone we know uh, took a picture with her at uh, at Pride. Oh, my God. In, in New York City. And I'll have to tell you about that offline. Um, but I was like, are you fucking kidding me, man? <laughs> uh, and... Yeah, but so the landscape that we're in right now is really complicated. It's really scary, but I just, you know, the fight continues and there are resources available now, especially with like the internet that uh, I think a lot of, you know, that that should give us should give us some shred of if not hope then at least direction yeah um you know and if you're in a red state and you're worried about your data being used um if you need an abortion um you can there are certain browser extensions that you can use also public libraries wipe their browser data every day um that's always an option and there's no real there's no real way to track that um if you use the computer of a public library um i just it's a horrifying place to be right now but it's we have we have resources and we have to keep fighting for people to continue to be to be able to access those resources so i hope that uh, this episode today has given some sort of direction of in terms of how far we've come in this, even though we've been set back so far um, and kind of what's next. Obviously, yes, we're all extremely disillusioned with electoral politics right now. 100 uh, percent electoral politics has not done a lot for us, uh, especially like millennials in our lifetimes. We've had two, <laughs> uh, you know, like since we've been of, like even before we've been of voting age or whatever, it's, we've had two presidents who lost the electoral vote, who lost the popular vote rather, who appointed five out of the nine Supreme Court justices currently sitting uh it's really fucked up but 
these fights in the state legislatures are going to be extremely important and I will never be like, I will never say don't vote. I will never say that voting doesn't matter because it does. Um, but yeah, certainly Joe Biden being like, ladies vote, go to hell, sir. Oh God, I looked at that. I looked at the quote tweets on that just to torture myself. And it was just like all of these people being like, he's right, share this message with everyone. And I'm just like, shut up. Oh my God. I, you know, it's okay. One more thing and then we'll end. I also just want to say, you know, this thing that you get on social media that, you know, somehow criticizing the Democratic Party or criticizing leadership um, makes people not vote. Um, or like the squad criticizing democratic leadership makes people not vote. There's actually no evidence for that. No. And you know, that's, it's just fucking censorship. There's no evidence for a, a primary um, to make like even a very difficult primary competitive um, depressing the vote. I mean, if you think about like the Republican primary, I mean, that was in 2016, that was, you know, Donald Trump was, talking shit about everybody and that arguably rose made his profile you know a lot higher and uh you know so this is i don't want to say gaslighting but yeah it is gaslighting it's a it's a move by people who are looking to defend power or sometimes powerful people themselves um to you know render you know try to to make their opponents feel like uh you know they're somehow doing harm by talking about the democratic party at this specific time oh we can't do it now we can't do it before the midterms we can't do it when there's an election coming up in two years we can't do it after the election because joe biden or whoever needs to be you know it needs our support right now there's never an acceptable time to do it joe biden needs a nap yeah he's really sleepy he needs yeah he needs it's his feeding time But yeah, also there's, I mean, also there is uh, data that shows that people have, people are voting in higher numbers in the U.S. than in decades. Yeah, exactly. And, and like, you know, that, I mean, everyone's heard this before, but even that like most Bernie Sanders voters voted for Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and, you know, in 2016, specifically the, the year that all the, uh, all the you know weirdo centrist k have people are still blaming bernie voters for i mean more bernie voters voted for hillary clinton than hillary voters voted for obama you know hillary primary mm-hmm. voters and you know i mean it's it's just it's a left punching hippie punching tactic a rhetorical move by centrists and people who have a centrist ideology to maintain power and it's not real i mean it's just people don't vote based on a post they that's a very demeaning uh disrespectful view just like just like they can make their own decisions based on their ideology we also do and you know or not even ideology in some cases just based on like hey how how are things going (laughs) You know, yeah. like, it's not, I don't need to see a post to understand that for me to get health insurance, it would cost $600 a month. I didn't need a leftist to tell me that or, mm-hmm. 
you know, AOC or Chapo Trap House or whatever. I know that because $600 is a lot of money. And these, I don't know, these people are just, you know, it's a rhetorical move to enforce the existing power structure. 100%. Um, is that it? Are we good? That's it, baby. All right. We'll see you next week. Donate to abortion funds. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash reply guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, OHJuliaTweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land